Not to go into the screen. Oh, uh, shoot. New capture devices on. Not probably going to be able to use it. Um, well, even though you can't see me right now, this is Bread Theory. And uh, tonight we are going to be doing, um, I'm going to have a, a special guest on, uh, Rob from For We Are Many. Uh, but before we get into the, the chapter tonight, I just wanted to mention briefly that I have finally made affiliate. So if you feel like uh, donating anything tonight, if you feel like subbing, that is that is absolutely now an option. So um, thank you. Thank you so much to all the people that have helped me uh, get to this point, all the, all the viewers and um, folks who have believed in, in the work that I'm doing here, trying to bring leftist theory to more people and, and help you through it. You know, a lot of these texts are, are old and I'm, I'm here to help put a modern spin on it. And uh, as I mentioned, Rob is going to be helping me tonight. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm, I think without further ado, going to get into the, uh, the call and we will be doing our normal sort of thing. We're doing State and Revolution Chapter 2. Uh, this is part one. Not quite sure how long this one's going to go, so we'll just call it part one for now. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, speaking of, of Rob, there he is right there. So please welcome to the stream Rob from For We Are Many. How are you doing tonight, Rob? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that um, we're able to do this together because we also had planned to do a state and revolution series so why not combine efforts yeah yeah maybe, just maybe overlap audiences you know yeah yeah you know um, definitely yeah no no problem in, in sharing people that uh like this sort of thing yeah for sure. in, in terms of the the work that for we are many has been doing we've had you on for our mm -hmm. anarchism and other essays uh pieces so far and I want to continue that as well. It's kind of oh, nice yeah. to have, you know, the anarchist perspective yeah. when we're doing anarchist literature. Oh, yeah. And, and vice versa, too. That, that's one big reason I'm, I'm happy to have you on tonight, because you're coming more from the, the communist side of things. Right. Um, yeah. So, 
So we also uh, yesterday actually did a an interview with the Star Trek communist Will Win, and that was that was so much fun. I can't wait to have him. That was oh man, what a phenomenal interview too! Like he he just he's just like on like he yeah got like, everything ready to go. <laughs> it was amazing and a lot of fun too. Like he really yeah. makes it fun to to learn about this stuff. And it's still it just cool. surreal to me like as a Trekkie that a fellow communist made it on the front page of star Trek.com because of communist. that's wild. <laughs> that's so cool. That's so cool. That, I mean, I guess someone at that magazine gets it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. First so, uh, I guess without further ado, let's dive right into chapter two. Chapter two. Let's do it. On to chapter two. The Experience of 1848 to 1851, Section 1, The Eve of Revolution. The first works of mature Marxism, The Poverty of Philosophy and the Communist Manifesto, appeared just on the eve of the Revolution of 1848. For this reason, in addition to presenting the general principles of Marxism, they reflect to a certain degree the concrete revolutionary situation of the time. It will therefore be more expedient, perhaps, to examine what the authors of these works said about the state immediately before they drew conclusions from the experience of the years 1848 to 1851. In The Poverty of Philosophy, Marx wrote, quote, the working class in the course of development will substitute for the old bourgeois society an association which will preclude classes and their antagonism, and there will be no more political power groups since the political power is precisely the official expression of class antagonism in bourgeois society." Unquote. It is instructive to compare this general exposition of the idea of the state disappearing after the abolition of classes with the exposition contained in the Communist Manifesto, written by Marx and Engels a few months later, in November 1847, to be exact. Quote, in depicting the most general phases of the development of the proletariat, we traced the more or less veiled civil war, raging within existing society up to the point where that war breaks out into open revolution, and where the violent overthrow of the bourgeoisie lays the foundation for the sway of the proletariat. Quoting again, We have seen above that the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of the ruling class to win the battle of democracy. Do you want to Quoting pause it right again, there? The proletariat yeah. will use its political supremacy Okay, so yeah, that, that's a pretty big uh, chunk that we can uh, dive into there. Um, so he's, he's basically saying that uh, well, the last sentence was the, the first step in the revolution is to elevate the, the um, proletariat to the position of the, the bourgeois, right? Yeah. Uh, or the position of the ruling class. So, so basically... I mean, to me, that that sounds a lot like uh, what he called the dictatorship of the proletariat. So, in, instead of this this special ruling class that's separate from everybody, we have uh, a a rule by the people, like uh, directly. Yeah, well, that that's the whole point. I think um, is to kind of. <laughs> well, okay, so I guess like I'm going a little bit out of the way here, but. No, that's Mao right. later would um, point out the, the, the same the same things. Mm -hmm. uh, 
that uh, a, a revolution is a violent act, no matter mm-hmm. how much you want it to be, no matter how much you try to make it, uh, a revolution is a violent act in which one class exerts power over another class. Right. And right now we live under a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. The 1% make all the decisions. If we flip that around, the 99% are making the decision. Mm-hmm. Very true. Very true. Um, so yeah, so so the, the ruling class is not just going to give up power. They like things how it, it is. Uh, and there's no amount of just trying to talk to them or, or reason with them that's going to get them to be like, oh, okay, we'll just share power. We'll just give up our, our privileged, entitled positions so that everyone can have what we have, or at least a, a, you know some approximation of what we have. Uh, Lenin is arguing that it, it has to come through force, and, and definitely it does have to come through force uh, one way or another, whether that's just force of attrition, like... Uh, uh, I think more the the anarchist method would be more to like build power structures that are, are parallel to the current government to then make the current government obsolete. That would be one way of doing it. So if government's not providing housing, you provide housing. If it's not providing food, you provide food. And eventually the people just don't need it anymore. And and because the, because their basic needs are being met, the the ruling class can't really exert uh such threats as like you know um worker starve or you know accept laws that that privilege us or or else you know it, it they, they lose their power basically their, their main power is is uh a stick it's it's to uh whack the the uh the underclass into into line basically right very cool all right uh, do you want to keep? Yeah, let's go back to it. Supremacy to rest by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e. of the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible, unquote. Here we have a formulation of one of the most remarkable and most important ideas of Marxism on the subject of the state namely, the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, as Marx and Engels began to call it after the Paris Commune. And also, a highly interesting definition of the state, also one of the forgotten words of Marxism, quote, the state, i.e. the proletariat organized as the ruling class. This definition of the state has never been explained in the prevailing propaganda and agitation literature of the official social democratic parties. More than that, it has been deliberately ignored, for it is absolutely irreconcilable with reformism and is a slap in the face for the common opportunist prejudices and philistine illusions about the, quote, peaceful development of democracy. The proletariat needs the state. This is repeated by all the opportunists, social chauvinists, and Kautskyites. What was that? Uh, just that last that, that last phrase there really stuck out with me. The the illusions about the peaceful development of democracy, and we have a, a, a chatter in, in my comments here. Uh, Blatt Blatt Jvig, who says uh, people going hungry, houseless, or denied medical or denied medicine is all violence already. And I think that's a really important point to keep in mind that that there there is this grand illusion that because we live in a democracy that, that things are just uh, peacefully done. There's a peaceful transfer of power 
every time the, a new president comes in or a new um, any sort of elected re representative comes in. But at the same time, there is real violence being done to the poorest of people all the time. And not, not just literal, you know, cops beating people, which absolutely happens uh, a lot. But it's, it's, yeah, the denial of things. The putting people out on the street because they, they can't afford rent, putting them out on the street because they can't afford their medical bills, letting them die because they, they can't afford uh, health care. All these things are violence already. So, so already the, the ruling class is inflicting violence on everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with that uh, line of thinking. We are victims of violence Mm -hmm. every day from the productive forces from your employer uh mm -hmm. from the government we are we are under attack with violence every day um denying people basic human fucking rights like housing water uh food medicine uh, how that's not considered a crime against humanity by uh the un blows my mind i know yeah uh, it, it's just like how um you know the the the, the so-called libertarians, the the right side of, of of libertarianism, they they are always like, oh, we can do everything. Freedom means freedom from coercion and freedom from force, and and they just you have to close your eyes to the idea that that you know threatening people with with starvation and and uh, bodily harm is a kind of force. Yeah. Even if you're not right. coming out and saying it directly, just denying them access to the basic necessities of life, that is a form of coercion and force. How could it be anything else? Um, all they want really is, is is freedom for people that already own things and, and not for anybody else. But but yeah, force is happening constantly against us. Um, that's where the actual repression and oppression comes in. It's not just, you know, uh, leftist whining about uh, wanting what other people have or being envious or anything like that. There's literal force being applied against us at all times. At all times, yes. At all, at all times, yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, do you want to continue on there? Yeah. Um, I also just remembered, I, like, okay, so the last time we paused, uh, you were talking about the anarchist methods, and I just wanted to, I don't know why I didn't think of it at the time, but I just wanted to throw out there that Mao preached a similar thing. Uh, hmm. The idea of dual power is building power structures outside of the existing ones to Absolutely. force the hand of the state. Absolutely. Uh, so we're not too we're not too far apart there either on you right. know, the, the approach. And, and, and also, it's it's not as though if you choose one path, then the other one just completely gets shut down forever. You can always switch paths and and you know you can always adapt your combine, path. paths, combine right. paths or, or adapt them to the to you know situationally to to what's uh the most effective at the time so oh thank you very much aliosher uh he says nice affiliate celebrate noise yay <laughs> i appreciate that mm. thank you very much and everyone follow aliosher as well uh he's a great leftist streamer likes to cover u.s politics generally but uh lots lots of really great content on their channel I'm going to do a uh, shout out right now. Oh, thank you so much, Ali, for, for the cheer. That, that's my first uh, cheer ever. That's my first bits that I've ever received. So I'm, I'm, I'm very honored to, to have that come from you. 
Let's hope that works. All right. Indeed. All right. Who assure us that this is what Marx taught, but they, quote, forget to add that in the first place, according to Marx, the proletariat needs only a state which is withering away, i.e. a state so constituted that it begins to wither away immediately and cannot but wither away. And secondly, the working people need a, quote, state, i.e. the proletariat organized as the ruling class. The state is a special organization of force. It is an organization of violence for the suppression of some class. What class must the proletariat suppress? Naturally, only the exploiting class, i.e. the bourgeoisie. The working people need the state only to suppress the resistance of the exploiters, and only the proletariat can direct this suppression, can carry Keep it right out. There. For yeah. the proletariat is the only... So I think this is a strong case that, that they make for a, a centralized uh, form of, of proletarian government, uh, that, that it's needed to, because you need a state to suppress these forces, because these forces don't just go away because you have a revolution, there's still going to be counter-revolutionaries within your, your nation and, and coming from without, especially if you're in the U.S.'s crosshairs. Um, so I, that's, that's a strong case that they make, that, that a, a strong centralized state is needed to suppress these uh, would-be counter-revolutionaries. So I and think, uh, I, I would just like to throw some modern context on that. Do you think QB even would have survived if they weren't a communist state at this point? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I mean, they were being, I, I've, I've just been uh, listening to the blowback podcast. Have, are you familiar with that one at all? I've heard of it, but I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah. So, so their new season is all about uh, the, Cu uh, the Cuban revolution. And um, it was pretty amazing. The, uh, the level of exploitation that was going on before uh, the Cuban revolution uh, they basically just had a, a, a dictator who was friendly with the U.S., he, you know, very lax on regulations. It was basically a casino country, like li literally. It was the place where all the, the mafiosos would go to, to set up their new casinos. Yeah, it was, it was like, it was like, <laughs> imagine Las Vegas, right, on an island nation in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Only, only with even less regulation than the state of Nevada. So, yeah. Um, and, and in that sort of a situation, of course, the people with the most money are, are just going to go hog wild and exploit everyone they can. Like it already happens in these poor Caribbean nations. I saw it in the Dominican Republic, how there would be rolling blackouts throughout the entire country, except for the, the tourist resorts, which were, were pumped up by U.S. dollars and, and there to cater to uh, the, the needs of, of us tourists, uh, but everyone else was, you know, living a very much, uh, I don't, I don't like the term third world, but a, a lower, uh, level of development than, than say the U S. Um, I mean, it was, it was common to see donkey carts on the, on the streets along with, uh, all the other traffic, almost every streetlight was always out. So traffic was just totally uncontrolled and it was just, yeah, a lot of poverty. And it was really sad to see that, that all of the wealth was going to people that already were well enough off to come there and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very fair point. I have not been to any, uh, uh, Caribbean islands, but 
Um, I have done a little bit of research into Cuba, both, you know, in terms of the revolution. I mean, Batista, the dictator you were just referring to, him and his cronies basically took off with helicopters full of cash for the United States when the revolution happened, right? Yep. So, like, there was nothing left in their treasury. Uh -huh. um, the The conflicts that pushed the regime out had left a lot of property destroyed, um, the sugarcane harvest, for example, mm -hmm. uh, was decimated. Um, and then pretty much right on the back of that, the U.S. put sanctions in place. Yep. And put over 300 attempts at least. The Cuban government says it's a lot more, but at oh, least yeah. 300 attempts into Fidel Castro's life. I know. Uh, yeah, and they, they were they were talking about in several of the episodes how uh, Kennedy and Eisenhower before him were literally working with the U.S. mob to to hatch all these plots to either kill Castro or just in some way overthrow the revolution. Uh, it's it's pretty wild that that we hold up these presidents to be well, I mean, at least some people hold up these presidents to be like models of great Americans and, you know, upholders of the law and all this stuff. They're literally working with with known U.S. criminals uh, and crime families to try to topple a foreign nation just because they were mad yeah. that all their friends lost their money from their old casinos. And that's what, it's, what it really comes down to. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So, uh, it, it seems like they, they, the U.S. really got mad when they when they did land reform like that seems to be like the 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 real impetus for for going all out to try to do whatever they can by any means necessary to to get castro out of there because they just couldn't take the idea of well i mean there there was a bunch of wealthy sugar plantation owners that that had to flee the country as well so they were mad on their behalf as well so, so look what look what this this supposed bastion of democracy and freedom is doing around the world. They're 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 working with uh, mafiosos, and they're employing every sort of trick they can to overthrow a foreign power uh, that that uh, you know that there was no reason for them to be there other than capitalist interests they're, they're putting all their money and their their warships and their their threats and everything towards uh the interests of capital that's that's what the this the supposed bastion of freedom and democracy really stands for when it when it comes to foreign policy agreed <laughs> Ooh. um Natalie in our, uh, in our chat said, there's a reason we could not get a $15 minimum wage passed even with the Democrats in power. Exactly. Exactly. They're reformists. They're never going to be any more than reformists. And furthermore, they're, they're complacent in not actually reforming anything. They'll talk mm -hmm. all day about how they'll reform the police or train the police better, but... We've seen police budgets double since the murder of George Floyd. I know. Oh, they, they keep talking about, oh, look at all these liberal cities that have, have uh, defunded the police. What liberal cities have defunded the police? Not a single one has. Since Austin, Texas has actually, which is surprising being in Texas, but Austin, Texas has diverted some funds from yeah. the police. But, I mean, it's still a far cry short from what we're fucking calling for here. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, you can't reform when it comes down to, you just can't reform 
an institution whose main focus is protecting capital and private property. Like that, that's their main function in the society. That, that, there's no two ways about it. Look at any riot that ever, or so-called riot, any, any sort of an uprising that happens where, where windows start getting broken and stuff. Where are the places that the police go? They don't go to poor neighborhoods to defend them. They go to the wealthy neighborhoods. Um, so, I mean, that right there, that's, that's their main function. When push comes to shove, they're there to defend private property and the, the citizens that own that private property. Absolutely. Ultimately, in a bourgeois di dictatorship, that's the role of the state to Absolutely. protect capital. Protect capital. Yeah, for sure. So, geez. back to the text. Yeah, let's go back the only to class it. that is consistently revolutionary. The only class that can unite all the working and exploited people in the struggle against the bourgeoisie in completely removing it. The exploited classes need political rule to maintain exploitation, i.e. in the selfish interests of an insignificant minority against the vast majority of all people. The exploited classes need political rule in order to completely abolish all exploitation, i.e. in the interests of the vast majority of the people. Okay, I'm just going to reiterate the sentence and then move on. That's all I got here, but the exploited okay. classes need political rule in order to completely abolish all exploitation, i.e. in the interests of the vast majority of the people. Yep. I just wanted to reiterate that. Yeah, it, it's, it's an important point. Yeah, good. And against the insignificant minority consisting of the modern slave owners, the landowners, and capitalists. Yes, the capitalists. The petty bourgeois owners. Democrats, those sham socialists, who replaced the class struggle by dreams of class harmony, even pictured the socialist trans... Okay, so, the, okay, I'm sorry to pause it again already. No, let's go. The, the petite bourgeois Democrats, those sham socialists who replaced the class struggle with dreams of class harmony, doesn't this sound like it's fucking today? Doesn't yeah. it sound like we're talking about Bernie Sanders and AOC? In a certain sense, yeah. Yeah, I would say so. That The people that are, are trying to somehow make compromise as though there can be a, uh, ultimately a compromise where everyone is okay and, and everyone has uh, more or less an equal say in society and their world. So, yeah, yeah. I can definitely see why why uh, a lot of communists are suspect of, of like the social democrats and that sort of thing, the, the reformists, because... Um, it just seems like, you know, like for what, for example, what happened with uh, the New Deal, the, like the original New Deal, where there was a huge communist push in this country, in the U.S. Uh, unions were becoming incredibly strong. Uh, the people were really getting organized and pushing towards communism as as a solution to uh, the Great Depression, uh, and as a, a so-called compromise. We got the the New Deal, which was just a, a make work program. It it did get us, you know, out of the depression. It did what it said, but at the cost of of having actual revolution, really, you know, having actual revolutionaries in power. So, before I unpause, Natalie has a another comment. Is it going to show the whole thing? Yes. I think the goal. Is to Ooh, keep one, people one. working. Huh? Sorry, sorry I, just, I just want to pause it one second. I just got a raid. Uh, 
this this is the first raid I've ever had. So thank you, Mitnerd, for the the raid. Welcome in, Raiders. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of this tonight. This is my. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with me, I do um, I do theory streams usually on Fridays. Thank you for the uh, the subscription, Jelly Moon. Thank you very much for my very first subscription on this channel. That's that's very generous of you. Thank you so much. So I just made affiliate. Uh, which is why I'm so excited about these these uh, subs and so forth. Um, this is my first stream. Uh, thank you very much, Mitnerd, for the follow. It's going to take a little bit here, sorry. Uh, but anyway, so so on Fridays usually is when I do my my theory streams. Right now we're working through State and Revolution by Lenin, uh, but we're doing it on Wednesday. Uh, thank you for the follow as well. Uh, it's it's. <laughs> There's too much stuff on the screen. It's too hard to follow. Sorry, but thank you very much for the follow, uh, Kitsune Alicia. Um, and then on on Sundays, I usually do uh, uh, just whatever I feel like doing. So lately, it's been permaculture. I just finished up part eight in my series of permaculture 101, uh, just getting you used to permaculture ideas. Um, so that'll be going on this Sunday. No, no stream this Friday uh, because that's happening tonight instead. And we have on uh, Rob of. For we are many podcast, and uh, yeah, hello bread crochets as well. Good to see you. oh Pinko the bear. Hello, welcome in. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna do a shout out to to you guys too, just because uh, I like your channels a lot. Oh, let me uh, get on the message there. Sorry to slow things down, but <laughs> it's all good, man. Um, I was actually going through comments on our channels uh, myself. Sure, yeah. If you want to do that, you go right ahead. Yeah. Uh, Natalie said, I think the goal is to keep people working and oppressed with low wages and thus no revolution or revolt to squash their power. I think there's a lot more than just this, though it's all about capitalism and keeping the, the 99% under control. And I'm probably about to like age myself here, right? But uh, we are the 99%. All right. Occupy hasn't died. It's evolved. I'm just saying. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. A it's, lot it's, of us are commies now. Imagine if we had theory back then. I know, really. Like, uh, that was one of my biggest disappointments with Occupy was that it, it was all this energy building and it seemed like the right time to do it after we just had this huge recession. Like the material conditions were really ripe for, for making a push to something really big. It seemed like but then it just kind of, it never quite formed a direction enough to really make that final push. So, well, I, yeah, I mean, there was no official list of demands published until six months in. And by that point, most of the occupations had fallen. You know, there's, there's a whole lot to it, really. But, um, you know, here we are still, still pushing for the, yeah. the struggle. Yeah, still pushing. Yeah. And, it, and, and I got, one more comment. It's actually from the For We Are Many page, but it says Trisha here, still feeling, still feeling nauseated and can barely talk, but I'm listening oh. in. Yeah, so, I saw that earlier that her, her voice is not doing well. Yep, yeah. yep. Solidarity with, with you, Trisha. Hope you hope you have a speedy recovery, and hopefully she'll be able to to join us in in future episodes too. That would be great. Agreed. I would assume that she'll probably be there for Monday's episode. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Hopefully she'll have better connectivity this time as well. So that was a, oh my gosh, right? Yeah, I was on Get on that, Trisha. <laughs> I'm, I'm, right, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Right, so back to the text. 
yeah, let's get back to it. Transformation in a dreamy fashion, not as the overthrow of the rule of the exploiting class, but as the peaceful submission of the minority to the majority, which has become aware of its aims. This petty bourgeois utopia, which is inseparable from the idea of the state being above classes, led in practice to the betrayal of the interests of the working classes, as was shown, for example, by the history of the French revolutions of 1848 and 1871, and by the experience of, quote, socialist participation in bourgeois cabinets in Britain, France, Italy, and other countries at the turn of the century. All his life, Marx fought against this petty bourgeois socialism, now revived in Russia by the socialist revolutionary and Menshevik parties. He developed his theory of the class struggle consistently, down to the theory of political power, of the state. The overthrow of bourgeois rule can be accomplished only by the proletariat, the particular class whose economic conditions of existence prepare it for this task and provide it with the possibility and the power to perform it. While the bourgeoisie break up and disintegrate the peasantry and all the petty bourgeois groups, they weld together, unite, and organize the proletariat. Only the proletariat, by virtue of the economic role it plays in large-scale production, is capable of being the leader of all the working and exploited people, whom the bourgeoisie exploit, oppress, and crush, often not less, but more than they do the proletarians but who are incapable of waging an independent struggle for their emancipation. The theory of class struggle, applied by Marx to the question of the state and the socialist revolution, leads as a matter of course to the recognition of the political rule of the proletariat, of its dictatorship, i.e. of undivided power directly backed by the armed force of the people. The overthrow of the bourgeoisie can be achieved only by the proletariat becoming the ruling class, capable of crushing the inevitable and desperate resistance of the bourgeoisie and of organizing all the working and exploited people for the new economic system. All right. So uh, the theory of class struggle applied by Marx, we, we keep seeing a lot of the, the same terms coming back up, right? The, the rule of the proletariat, the ruling class, the dictatorship, the whole point, is that right now there's a very small amount of people that call all of the shots, right? The mm -hmm. idea is to turn that upside down. Flip it on its head. That's, that's what makes it authoritarian. It's not that we're going around trying to just like white people out that disagree with us. No, that's not the point. The no. point is to wrestle control from this very small group. It's to spread democracy, spread that power out. You know, have a true democracy right. where the people are actually in control. Uh, I, I was I was arguing. You've had a bunch of uh, libertarians come into your your Facebook page recently. <laughs> oh my God! And I, and yeah. I was uh, wading into the fray there, and uh, uh, there's this one guy who was a small business owner, and I just could not get him to understand that his business structure was authoritarian and dictatorial. He's like, no, but no, but no, it's a, it's just a business. That's how you do business. And I'm like. Okay, do your workers have any say in what they do? No, but like you can't kill anybody. Like if dictators can kill people. I'm like, okay, we'll we'll put aside the fact that if you like fire someone, not paying somebody there, is killing them. Well, yeah, yeah, but what we'll, I think that's like very many levels beyond what he was even ready for. Uh, but I was just, I, you know, I was like, okay, I'm I'm just saying the power structure is is 
the same thing. There's one person at the top calling all the shots. Everyone else has to go along or get out, basically. Like, oh, what about a board of directors? I'm like, okay, that's a few people. But, but still, the vast majority of people have zero say in their workplace. They can't, they can't really <laughs> decide their wages or how profit is distributed. They can't decide working conditions. They can't really decide anything. Um, but, I mean, he didn't get it. So hopefully someone saw that and at least <laughs> started thinking about these ideas and stuff like that. But uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so Trisha said, uh, I only even – this is about the having theory at Occupy thing. She said, right – I only even first heard about Mao and Che from Jaren, uh, who was an occupier in Flint, during mm -hmm. Occupy and started looking into them and got inspired, but that was just skimming the surface. It wasn't until we started digging through theory more in depth, obviously, this past year when we started the podcast, weird how yeah. that works, yeah. um, that I saw the foundations of their perspectives and the quotes I'd found, under, or found a decade ago and Jaren lit a fire under my ass to look them up. Cool. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. Emily said hi. Hello, Emily. Uh, hello, Emily. It, it's amazing how, how little it really takes, though. If if you already are inclined towards you know wanting a, a you know a better world, whatever that means to you, um, all it takes is a little bit of, of guidance. And I think that's really where 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 theory's biggest power is. Is it kind of it says all you know all these things are you've been thinking about but haven't really been able to articulate. Well, here's a way. Here's someone who has articulated it. What do you think of that then? And and well, and not only that, it kind of gives us historical precedent, right? Like we get Absolutely. to see. I mean, especially in the case of the Russian Revolution, say what you will about the USSR, it was a success. They went from a very poor feudal state to mm -hmm. a world superpower to a nuclear superpower in one generation. Yeah, that's it's wild. It's, it's China incredible. 1.3 billion people out of poverty in one generation. That's, I'm not saying they're perfect. They're way oh, too sure. capitalists for my liking. But <laughs> yeah, that's true. They too. have a stranglehold on that level of capital. Yep. Yeah, but I mean, those were amazing feats, and the only, the only. Uh, you know, quote unquote facts that that the uh, the right ever likes to bring up is how many people have been killed supposedly by communism, and it seems like that number is always going up. I think it's it's oh yeah, it's it's like six hundred bajillion now, right? Yeah, it, it's basically like the the McDonald's sign. You know, it's in, instead of billions and billions served, it's billions and billions killed by by one guy. Um, so yeah, yeah. But, well, and, and that one guy narrative needs to go. This great man of history thing just <laughs> oh. just stop it. No, the, the, the whole system they had behind. support yeah. of the mass line. It was the masses that made these mistakes, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. Stalin. <laughs> yeah, not it's never just one person. Not countries never rise and fall on on the leadership or lack thereof of of just one person. So that's that's very true. Very true. Well, uh, shall we shall we continue on? Yeah, yeah. The proletariat needs state power a centralized organization of force, an organization of violence, both to crush the resistance of the exploiters and to lead the enormous mass of the population, the peasants, the petty bourgeoisie, and semi-proletarians, in the work of organizing a socialist economy. By educating the Workers' Party, Marxism educates the vanguard of the proletariat, capable of assuming power and leading the whole people to socialism, of directing and organizing the new system, 
of being the teacher, the guide, the leader of all the working and exploited people in organizing their social life without the bourgeoisie and against the bourgeoisie. By contrast, the opportunism now prevailing trains the members of the Workers' Party to be the representatives of the better-paid workers, who lose touch with the masses, get along fairly well under capitalism, and sell their birthright for a massive pottage, i.e. renounce that? their role as revolutionary leaders of... Okay, so, so we're getting into the Vanguard Party. And this is something that... This, I'll admit, this is a, a stumbling block for me when it, when it comes to communist thought, because I can understand the idea of if you have a, a group of people that are knowing what they're doing and uh, going forward, actually putting in, in motion a revolution. My, my fear is always, though, what happens after the revolution. You have a group of people that have, have put all this, this work into ensuring a certain outcome uh, that, that they very much may care about uh, things going exactly right, and my fear is, is, is that that concentration of power then kind of stays where it's at, rather than, than, than bleeding back out to the people or, or, or just filtering back out to the people to, to create an actual uh, dictatorship of the proletariat. My fear is that once you concentrate that power, that it just kind of stays that way. And, it, and that might even be a good thing for a while, but no one lives forever. Eventually someone new comes and takes the place of the old person and every time, as, as long as the concentration of power, every time that's, that's a roll of the dice, uh, and you may get someone that becomes more of a tyrant than, than an actual leader. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I tend to agree, and I think that Mao would tend to agree. Hmm. Uh, Mao, well, first of all, he advocated for dual power. That includes under the Communist Party system. Um, so... <laughs> The Great Purge uh, in, in China was where Mao literally sent sick the masses on the Communist Party because uh, at various levels of the party, um, you know, reactionaries had come to power. And I'm not saying that that's not risky, too, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. I mean, it was a violent thing, but ultimately it was probably something that had to happen. Because if Mao would have died before that happened, one of those reactionary people that was doing questionable things already would have ended up getting a whole lot more power than they should. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, can, I can definitely see that too. Um, yeah. But th that being said, China, like Mao thought, Mao talked a lot about the mass line. Okay, so like you have to have the support of the masses and you have to keep the support of the masses. And uh, I, I feel like Cuba's approach to that is better than better than China's is, or uh, which I mean that being said, China still has a higher percentage of people participating in their political system than we do. But <laughs> in Cuba, uh, the participation rate is like ninety-seven to ninety-eight percent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and very good. their their primary system, or what are their equivalent to our primary system takes place at the neighborhood level and each neighborhood nominates somebody and then it goes to the next level and you know mm -hmm. until until there's one person left that right. the majority agree on right and that's why there's only one person on the ballot the conservatives love to try to make mm -hmm. it sound like they're not democratic because well yeah. if, you're, if you're running an election unopposed then how are you democratically elected mm -hmm. like, yeah pay attention to how their system actually functions though 
And, and I mean, Cuba is obviously an easier example than China, uh, having the Communist Party of China operating at the neighborhood level is probably doable through technology now, but 50 years ago, there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's absolutely no way. I can see um, that. So, I mean, I do think that it needs to be a little more decentralized than Lenin's initial vision. That being said, I'm not saying throw out the book. This book is hugely important. Oh yeah, no, no, I'm, uh, not, I'm just but, you know expressing. I, I feel like people after Lenin have refined that idea, uh, especially in terms of centralization. So the thing is, though, is that exactly what you said is a concern, um, sure. and, and ideally, the Vanguard Party has a mass base before they come into power because if the party is the masses, then there's no separation there. Whereas mm -hmm. the way Lenin worded it when he came up with this theory sounds like a small group of people rather than the mass line. And that's why I prefer to take Mao's take on that specific detail. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that's helpful. Helpful. Thanks for that. Um, I just want to highlight one comment in, in my chat here. Uh, Katsune says, I will say anyone that is concerned about what happens after the revolution doesn't understand what a revolution is. And that, that's, that's a very good point. Uh, I misspoke. I, I, I meant the overthrow of the old order, not the revolution, because of course the revolution is the fulfillment of the promises that you make to the proletariat beforehand. Um, and it's ongoing. You're very right in that too. Uh, the world is constantly changing. They say the revolution will never end. There will always be new, uh, concentrations of power forming, as they say, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. You know, I, I can't, I don't think I could have said it any better. And, and, um, was I, that your, was that the commenter's own words or is that Leon Trotsky? I, I well, you know, that's, I, not, that's not an insult, by the way. <laughs> I, I know that I'm a Marxist Leninist, but I uh -huh. do tend to agree with, with Trotsky on the idea of permanent revolution just because sure. the revolution happens and the, the, ownership of the means of production is democratized and all this doesn't mean that somebody corrupt isn't going to find a way to seize sure. power, especially sure. if there's any sort of vacuum. So I tend to think that Trotsky was onto something with his ideas of permanent revolution. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, thinking back just to the conquest of bread that, that I had covered earlier, Kropotkin would agree with that as well. He, he basically says the, the idea of the revolution is the fulfillment of the promise to the people who are making the revolution for you. So before you worry about bureaucracy or anything else, make sure the people are fed, housed, all the things you've promised them, make sure that happens. And then you invest the revolution in everybody. And, and so that was his idea of guarding against threats, foreign and domestic, was, was making everybody a, a permanent revolutionary, basically. So once they have a taste of, of real freedom and real choice in their, and real democracy in their life, they're not going to give it up easily. So just naturally, as threats arise. I tend to agree with well, that. Yeah. I'm, I mean, look at when the, when the federal government started cracking down on the Black Panther Party, they formed mm. the Black Liberation Army to fight back. And mm. I mean, it's not like they were controlling states even. They just had a significant right. presence. Like, imagine yeah. if they were controlling uh, if they had established a people's government and say, even just in the city of Oakland, California, imagine how sure. much harder, how many more people would have fought for that. 
That would that man. That would have been quite a thing to see. Yeah, yeah. I I mean honestly, I think that's why they 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 meaning the alphabet men, of course, CIA, FBI, yeah, uh, uh, PD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I'll throw that in there. But the, the the point is though, is these people were proposing a future where everybody had a say and right. where um, everybody's needs were met. And that resonated with people and, and aspects of the Black Panther Party's programs were co-opted by liberals and turned into government programs, uh, you know, like the free lunch at school. Well, that's a little bit different than having a, a free lunch, you know, with political education by the fucking Black Panthers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that ultimately they were like, we should give kids free lunch at school and free breakfast at school. Mm-hmm. So that way they're not being, you know, taught Marx and Lenin. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't doubt that at all. Um, and, that, and that shows, too, that the power of these parallel structures and, and parallel uh, forms of governance that, that we can collectively uh, build. And it, I mean, really, it, do, it doesn't take that much to get... Uh, the powers that be spooked on that court sort of thing, which is is a bit disheartening because it means like I mean, <laughs> yeah, as soon as you try to do anything to to better your community, it seems like actually better your community, not just like do a, a food drive or whatever, some temporary one time thing, but but long term <laughs> help your community. It seems like you're gonna have a target on your back. Yeah, yeah, I would tend to agree with that, and. Uh... I mean that's that's why the right the the right to bear arms, okay? Like nothing in this book where it, there's the camera. <laughs> nothing in this book would be possible if it wasn't for the people being armed. Yeah. And I, I mean think about the countries that have gotten social democratic governments. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I'm referring to like Germany and the Scandinavian countries where they have a form of uh, democratic socialism. All of that, which looks great on the surface, don't get me wrong. But all of that comes at the expense of the global south. Right. Right. Yeah. And and um, and ultimately capitalists still control the means of production. So, I, I mean, everything that the Scandinavian countries have gotten are concessions to keep capitalism in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't actually have anything to add to that. I think that's that's very well said. Anyway, back to the book. Yeah, yeah let's go back to the book. The, the people against the bourgeoisie. Marx's theory of, quote, the state, i.e. the proletariat organized as the ruling class, is inseparably bound up with the whole of his doctrine of the revolutionary role of the proletariat in history. The culmination of this rule is the proletarian dictatorship, the political rule of the proletariat. But since the proletariat needs the state as a special form of organization of violence against the bourgeoisie, the following conclusion suggests itself. Is it conceivable that such an organization can be created without first abolishing, destroying the state machine created by the bourgeoisie for themselves? The Communist Manifesto leads straight to this conclusion, and it is of this conclusion that Marx speaks when summing up the experience of the Revolution of 1848 to 1851. I don't have a whole lot to add here, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, that such an organization can create, uh, be created without first abolishing and destroying the state machine. Hmm. I think, and, and granted, maybe this is just idealism to a point. I don't know, but mm-hmm. I would like to think that the, the systems that are in place or that have already been built up, I should say, can be seized and used for other means. That that's definitely a good point. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it would be fundamentally changing them, and that maybe that's what Marx means by smashing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as long as they're fundamentally changed, I don't see what the issue and seizing them and keeping them operational or operational for the means of the proletariat. I, I, I think that would be a beneficial thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to agree with that for sure. Sorry. That, and that's going to get, um, just gives me some, some things to think about. So cool. Let, yeah. Let's move on to the next section then. The revolution summed up. Yeah, let's let's sum it up. Section one, moving on to section. Actually, can I just interject here to say um, that one of the one of the next big history projects I want to do, the next big series, actually, is specifically on the Paris Commune. Ah, um, and cool. I was, uh, if you want to be a part of that, you're more than welcome. Uh, yeah, if I, if I have provide, the time. yeah, I think it would provide a lot of for for me anyway. It would provide a lot of context into sure. what Marx was writing about. Yeah, that would be really interesting. That's something that, that I've been very interested in since reading uh, um, The Conquest of Bread, because he talks a lot about the Paris Commune and that, and, and its triumphs and failings and, and so forth. So yeah, definitely interested in it. Indeed. Section two, the revolution summed up. <laughs> Marx sums up his conclusions from the revolution of 1848 to 51. On the subject of the state we are concerned with, in the following argument contained in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, quote, But the revolution is thoroughgoing. It is still journeying through purgatory. It does its work methodically. By December 2, 1851, the day of Louis Bonaparte's coup d'etat, it had completed one half of its preparatory work. It is now completing the other half. First, it perfected the parliamentary power in order to be able to overthrow it. Now that it has attained this, it is perfecting the executive power, reducing it to its purest expression, isolating it, setting it up against itself as the sole object, in order to concentrate all its forces of destruction against it. And when it has done this second half of its preliminary work, Europe will leap from its seat and exultantly exclaim, Well grubbed, old mole. Quoting again, This executive power, with its enormous bureaucratic and military organization, with its vast and ingenious state machinery, with a host of officials numbering half a million, besides an army of another half million, this appalling parasitic body, which enmeshes the body of French society and chokes all its pores, sprang up in the days of the absolute monarchy, with the decay of the feudal system, which it helped to hasten. The first French Revolution developed centralization, but at the same time, it increased the extent, the attributes, and the number of agents of governmental power. Napoleon completed this state machinery. The legitimate monarchy and the July monarchy added nothing but a greater division of labor. Quoting again, 
Finally, in its struggle against the revolution, the parliamentary republic found itself compelled to strengthen, along with repressive oh, it's buffering. Oh, no. measures, the resources and centralization of governmental power. All revolutions perfected this machine instead of smashing it. The parties that contended in turn for domination regarded the possession of this huge state edifice as the principal spoils of the victor, unquote. In this remarkable argument, Marxism takes a tremendous step forward compared with the Communist Manifesto. In the latter, the question of the state is still treated in an extremely abstract oh. manner, in the most general terms and expressions. I can just pause for just one passage, second. The question is treated yeah. in a concrete manner. So I, I just want to say thank you to Bread Crochets for gifting a tier one sub to Strin. Thank you so much. That That's very kind of you. Um, so yeah, enjoy that that new emoji there. Uh, I, I wonder if anyone can guess what it is that I, that I've selected for my my uh, stream or for my particular stream emoji. Uh, sorry, just wanted to, to thank them and. Uh, oh, I'm I'm muted. I'm muted. You were yeah. muted on on my stream. That's interesting. Oh, okay. So he says, never mind. Now, okay. Um, anyway, thank you, Bread Crochets. So yeah, we can continue on. Um, actually, I was I was oh, kind of sure. wanting to interject, even though it's kind of a weird um, spot to do so. But uh, the question of the state is still treated in an extremely abstract manner in the Communist Manifesto because of when it was written. Um, the Paris Commune hadn't happened yet. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, he had no baseline to even go. Sure. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and the conclusion is extremely definite, practical, and palpable. All previous revolutions perfected the state machine, whereas it must be broken, smashed. This conclusion is the chief and fundamental point in the Marxist theory of the state. And it is precisely this fundamental point which has been completely ignored by the dominant official social democratic parties, and indeed distorted, as we shall see later, by the foremost theoretician of the Second International, Karl Kautsky. The Communist Manifesto gives a general summary of history, which compels us to regard the state as the organ of class rule, and leads us to the inevitable conclusion that the proletariat cannot overthrow the bourgeoisie without first winning political power, without attaining political supremacy, without transforming the state into the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and that this proletarian state will begin to wither away immediately after its victory, because the state is unnecessary and cannot exist in a society in which there are no class antagonisms. The question as to how, from the point of view of historical development, the replacement of the bourgeois by the proletarian state is to take place, is not raised here. This is the question Marx raises and answers in 1852. True to his philosophy of dialectical materialism, Marx takes as his basis the historical experience of the great years of revolution, 1848 to 1851. Here, as everywhere else, his theory is a summing up of experience, illuminated by a profound philosophical conception of the world and a rich knowledge of history. So I wanted to interject at the end of that paragraph to do some shameless self-promotion. but Go right for it. 
<laughs> if you go to forwearemany.org, sorry. Don't know. Um, right? Now I'm second guessing myself. I mean, that's that's what it said up on the on the uh, restream yes, thing. It's for wearemany.org. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a piece on the German revolutions and counter revolutions of 1848 and 49. Hmm. Uh, Eventually, we hope to add to that the the German the failed German Revolution of 1919, which ultimately led to Hitler's rise to power. Oh, uh, he sees power in the vacuum that was left by the failed revolution. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that sounds like a really good resource. Very cool. Indeed. Anyway, back to the text. Yeah. Problem of the state is put specifically the bourgeois state the state machine necessary for the rule of the bourgeoisie, come into being historically. What change did it undergo? What evolution did it perform in the course of bourgeois revolutions and in the face of the independent actions of the oppressed classes? What are the tasks of the proletariat in relation to the state machine? The centralized state power that is peculiar to bourgeois society came into being in the period of the fall of absolutism. Two institutions most characteristic of the state machine are the bureaucracy and the standing army. In their works, Marx and Engels repeatedly show that the bourgeoisie are connected with these institutions by thousands of threads. Every worker's experience illustrates this connection in an extremely graphic and impressive manner. From its own bitter experience, the working class learns to recognize this connection. That is why it so easily grasps and so firmly learns the doctrine which shows the inevitability of this connection, a doctrine which the petty bourgeois democrats either ignorantly and flippantly deny, or still more flippantly admit in general, while forgetting to draw appropriate practical conclusions. The bureaucracy and the standing army are a parasite on the body of bourgeois society, a parasite created by the internal antagonisms which rend that society, but a parasite which chokes all its vital pores. The Kautskyite opportunism now prevailing in official social democracy considers the view that the state is a parasitic organism to be the peculiar and exclusive attribute of anarchism. It goes without saying that this distortion of Marxism is a vast advantage to those Philistines who have reduced socialism to the unheard of disgrace of justifying and prettifying the imperialist war by applying to it the concept of, quote, the defense of the fatherland but it is unquestionably a distortion nevertheless. The development, perfection, and strengthening of the bureaucratic and military apparatus proceeded during all the numerous bourgeois revolutions which Europe has witnessed since the fall of feudalism. In particular, it is the petty bourgeois who are attracted to the side of the big bourgeoisie and are largely subordinated to them through this apparatus, which provides the upper sections of the peasants, small artisans, tradesmen, and the like with comparatively comfortable, quiet, and respectable jobs, raising the holders above the people. Consider what happened in Russia during the six months following February 27, 1917. The official posts which formerly were given by preference to the Black Hundreds, comment extreme reactionaries and monarchists, have now become the spoils of the cadets, comment the major bourgeois party, Mensheviks, and social revolutionaries. Nobody has really thought of introducing any serious reforms. 
every effort has been made to put them off, quote, until the Constituent Assembly meets, and to steadily put off its convocation until after the war. But there has been no delay, no waiting for the Constituent Assembly, in the matter of dividing the spoils of getting the lucrative jobs of ministers, deputy ministers, governors general, etc., etc. The game of combinations that has been played in forming the government has been, in essence, only an expression of this division and redivision of the spoils, which has been going on above and below throughout the country in every department of central and local government. The six months between February 27 and August 27, 1917, can be summed up, objectively summed up, beyond all dispute, as follows. Reforms shelved, distribution of official jobs accomplished, and mistakes in the distribution corrected by a few redistributions. But the more the bureaucratic apparatus is, quote, redistributed among the various bourgeois and petty bourgeois parties, among the cadets, socialist revolutionaries, and Mensheviks in the case of Russia, the more keenly aware the oppressed classes and the proletariat at their head become of their irreconcilable hostility to the whole of bourgeois society. Hence the need for all bourgeois parties, even for the most democratic and, quote, revolutionary democratic among them, to intensify repressive measures against the revolutionary proletariat, to strengthen the apparatus of coercion, i.e. the state machine. This course of events compels the revolution, quote, to concentrate all its forces of destruction against the state power and to set itself the aim not of improving the state machine, but of smashing and destroying it. You want to pause for one it second? is well, not logical. It does reason, have context. But actual development. Oh, sorry. Actual I experience I, of. I thought no I hit the pause button. Um, <laughs> but that does add context to what mm -hmm. we were uh, just discussing. Um, and I do think that, that using our, our systems, our electoral system especially, I think, has to be smashed and rebuilt. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's ultimately what they're talking about. And they're pointing out exactly why a Bernie Sanders revolution isn't going to work. Right. Yeah. Not, not going to get us over that goal line for sure. Um, definitely could make things better for a lot of people, but it's never going to, never going to be the complete change. That's for sure. So, so one thing that, that came up for me when I was reading that, um, <coughs> when he was talking about uh, even the most democratic and revolutionary, revolutionary democratic among them to intensify uh, repressive measures against the revolutionary proletariat um, to strengthen the apparatus of coercion, i.e., the state machine. So, what that actually reminds me of is uh, the the January sixth uh, uprising. I don't know what we're calling it now. The incident now, and how afterwards, I was I was kind of a little taken aback to see so many leftists who were like cheering on the FBI as it as it became strengthened and uh, just because it was going after the people that they happen not to like. I mean, I guess, I guess I can say I'm a little bit guilty of that, but it was more <laughs> like, because I thought it was funny. I mean, sure. Anything. Yeah. There's, there's definitely some, some, uh, schadenfreude in that. Some, some, uh, yeah, it, it's fun. It's <laughs> yeah, fun. I mean, I'll, I'll take, I'll take that, that criticism because you're right. Yeah. You're right. But, but I mean, over, and, yeah. and Sterling, who was on our show at the time, pointed out like if they were if they were going in for the for the needs of the working class then obviously we'd be looking at this a totally different light but that's right. the thing they were they were storming the capital to get 
a fucking fascist that did not get reelected to yeah. stay in office. And, mean, and, and, and that's why ultimately it was funny to me that, yeah. well, A, they didn't even try to hold any sort of, you know, government proceedings. They just put their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk and sniffed AOC's shoes. I mean, what the fuck? Well, yeah. 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 And, and, <laughs> and definitely um, it would have been bad had they actually succeeded, even if I, it was really unclear what they were actually going for. But, but at least some of them seemed like they meant to do uh, Congress people harm. And, you know, as, as bad as the system is, I, I definitely don't want it to devolve into fascism, like for real fascism. Um, so it was good that they, they stopped them from doing that, but just the, the amount of state power that they've now uh, increased uh, and, and, and used that as a, as a justification, that, that part is the scary part. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's what, yeah. that's what came up for me there. That's that's very fair. <laughs> All right, we going back to the book, or yeah, sure, yeah, let's go back to the book. Actually, hold on, the little chat icons lit up. Natalie said, "Agreed, the electoral system needs a total revision here in the USA." Yeah, and yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, to say the least, yeah. Yeah, it, it's been completely co-opted by the moneyed interests. Um, I mean, it's hard to even call it much of a democracy anymore. Perhaps at, at local levels, it's not quite so obvious, I guess, or, or, or overt, but definitely at the federal level, I mean, you got to be a, a millionaire to, to even make a run for Congress or at least have enough millionaires that you're willing to <laughs> make deals with. Uh, to, to fund your campaign. Um, the idea that somehow money is speech, uh, just the, the electoral college, all of these regressive measures that are in place to, to keep actual democracy from happening. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I just wanted to shout out another one of Natalie's comments. I think they all had their own reasons led by a fascist leader that scared and enraged them. I totally agree. That's... I mean, I don't know what their reasons were per se, but for whatever reason, Trump resonated with millions of Americans. And that's something that we need to think about, really. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think it is that that sense that, that most people have that things are not right in the country, um, what their reasons are may be questionable, uh, depending on what, what they have as their reasons. But the idea that things are just not working for a large portion of this country I think those are the material conditions that are that are pushing people to want a big change. And when that happens, it seems there's two basic options. You can either try and make things better for everybody uh, and, and push towards the left, or you can try and, and, and retreat back into some imagined safe fallback points. You know, they always talk about how, how fascists like to have this imagined past where you know, the hierarchy was, was set up just right, the right people were in power, and everything worked exactly as, as it should. Um, and that's what they use as, as their main propaganda point to, to try to push people to uh, want to reclaim, even though it never was a thing in the first place. But, but aside from that, I think that's one of the big driving factors that uh, pushes people towards fascism when they're feeling scared and powerless. Um, although at the same time, especially when you look at like the January 6th 
participants, a lot of those people were not at all working class. A lot of them were just like, you know, I, I own a, a, a boat rental place or, or I own a, you know, a small car dealership or something like that. And I'm mad that I got to wear a mask or something like, you know, I, I'm mad that I'm mad that I have any of my rights, my supposed rights infringed on at all. And, and so I want to go smash down the government because I can't go to Denny's, you know? Um, yeah. Oh my God. That's so accurate though. <laughs> uh, so, so Pink of the Bear says they feel their entitlement and supremacy slipping away. Yeah, yeah. So I think that definitely is another huge driving factor that pushes people towards fascism rather than than real change, or real positive change, I should say. We got a new viewer on our channel uh, commented oh. saying, I think they're warp-minded, but at some point in their core, most of them want what we do. And I agree with that. A lot of them don't even know that they want what we do. They don't know mm -hmm. what they want. They just want to live their lives. Right. And that's not going to happen under capitalism. Well, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's going to happen for a very select few, but at the expense of, of so many more. Um, it's it's never a solution that can work for everybody. We, can, we can't all be like, you know, going back to that, those debates I've been having with people on, on your page there on Facebook. So many of them are, are just like, oh, become a business owner. Become, well, okay. At some point, you gonna put up the fucking capital, yo? Well, I mean, yeah. yeah. But aside from that, but but like, <laughs> we can't we can't all just be, you know, sole proprietorship entrepreneurs. Like, at some point, like if you, yeah, that's if you own a restaurant, someone's gotta to to flip the burgers and 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 make the food and like wait the tables and stuff like that. So at some point, you have to have workers. So obviously, for the system to work. We can't all just be entrepreneurs. So even if it were possible for us all to just walk down to the bank and say, "I'd like the monies, please," uh, and they would just like, you know, uh, one of the, one of those comic dollar sign bags, just plop it right in your your lap and be like, "All right, have fun." Even if that were true, it's impossible for us all to take to to make that. And it's capitalism has to be a pyramidal shape. You have to have someone at the top. And in order to have that person at the top and, and to have any sort of wages to skim from to make themselves wealthy, they have to have workers. It's, it's just how it is. It structurally can't be anything else. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, one more comment and then we'll get back to the thing or unless sure. you got some more comments. Uh, Natalie <laughs> said, we need grassroots. And if they can't get the people's vote, then they don't have the policies in place anyways that are what the people want. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. Do you got uh, anything else you want to? That, that's all the comments on my end for now. So we can move on. Right. 1840-51 that led to being presented in this way. The extent to which Marx held strictly to the solid ground of historical experience can be seen from the fact that in 1852, he did not yet specifically raise the question of what was to take the place of the state machine to be destroyed. Experience had not yet provided material for dealing with this question, which history placed on the agenda later on in 1871. Comment the Paris Commune. In 1852, all that could be established with the accuracy of scientific observation was that the proletarian revolution had approached the task of concentrating all its forces of destruction against the state power, 
of smashing the state machine. Here the question may arise, is it correct to generalize the experience, observations, and conclusions of Marx to apply them to a field that is wider than the history of France during the three years 1848 to 51? Before proceeding to deal with this question, let us recall a remark made by Engels, and then examine the facts. In his introduction to the third edition of the 18th Brumaire, Engels wrote, quote, France is the country where, more than anywhere else, the historical class struggles were each time fought out to a finish, and where, consequently, the changing political forms within which they move and in which their results are summarized have been stamped in the sharpest outlines. The center of feudalism in the Middle Ages, the model country since the Renaissance of a unified monarchy based on social estates, France demolished feudalism in the Great Revolution and established the rule of the bourgeoisie in a classical purity unequaled by any other European land, and the struggle of the upward-striving proletariat against the ruling bourgeoisie appeared here in an acute form unknown elsewhere." Unquote. The last remark is out of date in so much as since 1871 there has been a lull in the revolutionary struggle of the French proletariat, although, long as this lull may be, it does not at all preclude the possibility that, in the coming proletarian revolution, France may show herself to be the classic country of the class struggle to a finish. Let us, however, cast a general glance over the history of the advanced countries at the turn of the century. We shall see that the same process went on more slowly, in more varied forms, in a much wider field. On the one hand, the development of parliamentary power both in the Republican countries, France, America, Switzerland, and in the monarchies, Britain, Germany to a certain extent, Italy, the Scandinavian countries, etc. On the other hand, a struggle for power among the various bourgeois and petty bourgeois parties, which distributed and redistributed the spoils of office, with the foundations of bourgeois society unchanged, and, lastly, the perfection and consolidation of the executive power of its bureaucratic and military apparatus. There is not the slightest doubt that these features are common to the whole of the modern evolution of all capitalist states in general. In the last three years, 1848 to 51, France displayed in a swift, sharp, concentrated form the very same processes of development which are peculiar to the whole capitalist world. Imperialism, the era of bank capital, the era of gigantic capitalist monopolies, of the development of monopoly capitalism into state monopoly capitalism, has clearly shown an unprecedented growth in its bureaucratic and military apparatus in connection with the intensification of repressive measures against the proletariat, both in the monarchical and in the freest Republican countries. World history is now undoubtedly leading, on an incomparably larger scale than in 1852, to the concentration of all forces of the proletarian revolution on the destruction of the state machine. What the proletariat will put in its place is suggested by the highly instructive material furnished by the Paris Commune. That's the end. So uh, I wanted to cut it off at the end of the section there to, to kind of talk about, yeah. um, I, I mean, he's talking about imperialism, the era of bank capital, of gigantic capitalist mm -hmm. monopolies. Does this mm -hmm. not sound like today? Absolutely. Because it is. Yeah. Because it's, it is. The same thing goes on, uh, especially the, the forces of, of the U.S. And, and the U.K. and the other big Western powers. That's that's how they project their power out into the world, 
is through uh yeah offering loans to to very impoverished countries they know that they can't really pay off um by working out really lopsided trade deals where you know you give up all the diamonds of your entire country and we'll give you some food um you know stuff like that this is you know capitalism funded by bankers rules today absolutely yeah uh, Wade said, "Being from small uh, a small town, oil Texas. Being from small town, oil Texas. There we go. <laughs> Born and raised, and still amongst them, I get loads of their thoughts. Um, I mean, honestly, that's that's kind of important. Understanding where they come from, mm -hmm. um, and, and trying to lead them on uh, a less oppressive path. I guess yeah. is the." way to put it well and, and a path where, where everyone can have a decent life uh, where we don't you don't have to worry about you know uh being robbed because everyone is provided for what's what's the the need for petty crime anymore after that uh wouldn't that be a nice world to live in like where we just don't need police most of the time because you know other than you know people in the heat of passion perhaps uh committing violent acts there's there's just not that impetus for, for crime anymore. Um, I mean, that sounds like a better world for everybody involved. Agreed. Um, Natalie said, many have been so brainwashed in fear of socialism. We need to try to reach them on a similar policy that is important to them, if that's possible. Not all, but some may be open to further understanding of what capitalism versus socialism really means to their life. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, Wade said, oh, I agree. And I would say that would be a golden ticket. Yep. I agree. Yep. I agree too. Uh, but it, it's, it's just so hard to get people to, to even engage with a proper definition of socialism when they've just had it drilled into their head that, uh, you know, it's, it's like what Richard Wolf says, you know, when, when the, when the government owns things and does stuff, that's socialism. And if it does a lot of stuff, that's communism. Like that, that's his, his classic quote there. And, and people really believe that that is the definition. They're like, oh, you just want government control of everything. No, no, we don't want just government control. Well, especially we want to redefine what government means, first of all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, but they're just thinking of government as it is now. We just, you know, want the government to intrude in everyone's lives and, and, and tell them they have to, you know, say PC culture things and, and um, you know, no more praying in school and like all these things that they're afraid of. Uh, but that's not what we want the government to do at all. We want it to be there to uplift the people, to, to empower people in their, in their daily lives so that we can get the most out of everyone too. Like um, I always like to think about uh, just how many people could make huge contributions to things like technology or education or just, you know, philosophy or thought in general, if they weren't always scrambling after jobs to survive, you know, if they just hadn't, you know, been unfortunate in the lottery of birth and, and had to struggle for everything they've had to the point where they can never really lift their head up and, and think about anything more for themselves or, or doing anything different with their lives because there's just no time you've got to survive. And so, it's it's quite the loss that we have in in and uh, all of humanity is impoverished by keeping the majority of people from ever reaching their potential. Right. 
Uh, Wade went on to say precisely, this government? Absolutely not. That's why I dodged communism for decades. Didn't we all? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're not alone there, Wade. Not at all. Yeah. Um, all right, back to the text. All right, last section of the chapter. End of section two. Beginning section three, the presentation of the question by Marx in 1852. In 1907, Mehring, in the magazine Neuzeit, volume 25, published extracts from Marx's letter to Wedemeyer, dated March 5, 1852. This letter, among other things, contains the following remarkable observation, quote, And now as to myself, no credit is due to me for discovering the existence of classes in modern society or the struggle between them. Long before me, bourgeois historians had described the historical development of this class struggle and bourgeois economists, the economic anatomy of classes. What I did that was new was to prove, one, that the existence of classes is only bound up with the particular historical phases in the development of production, two, that the class struggle necessarily leads to the dictatorship of the proletariat, three, that this dictatorship itself only constitutes the transition to the abolition of all classes and to a classless society, unquote. In these words, Marx succeeded in expressing with striking clarity, first, the chief and radical difference between his theory and that of the foremost and most profound thinkers of the bourgeoisie, and secondly, the essence of his theory of the state. It is often said and written that the main point in Marx's theory is the class struggle, but this is wrong. And this wrong notion very often results in an opportunist distortion of Marxism and its falsification in a spirit acceptable to the bourgeoisie. For the theory of the class struggle was created not by Marx, but by the bourgeoisie before Marx, and, generally speaking, it is acceptable to the bourgeoisie. Those who recognize only the class struggle are not yet Marxists. They may be found to be still within the bounds of bourgeois thinking and bourgeois politics. To confine Marxism to the theory of the class struggle means curtailing Marxism, distorting it, reducing it to something acceptable to the bourgeoisie. Only he is a Marxist who extends the recognition of the class struggle to the recognition of the dictatorship of the proletariat. That is what constitutes the most profound distinction between the Marxist and the ordinary petty as well as big bourgeois. This is the touchstone on which the real understanding and recognition of Marxism should be tested. And it is not surprising that when the history of Europe brought the working class face to face with this question as a practical issue, not only all the opportunists and reformists, but all the Kautskyites, people who vacillate between reformism and Marxism, proved to be miserable Philistines and petty bourgeois Democrats repudiating the dictatorship of the proletariat. Kautsky's pamphlet, The Dictatorship of the Proletariat, published in August 1918, i.e. long after the first edition of the present book, is a perfect example of petty bourgeois distortion of Marxism and base renunciation of it in deeds, while hypocritically recognizing it in words. See my pamphlet, The Proletarian Revolution, and the renegade Kautsky. Opportunism today, as represented by its principal spokesman, the ex-Marxist Karl Kautsky, fits in completely with Marx's characterization of the bourgeois position quoted above. For this opportunism limits recognition of the class struggle 
to the sphere of bourgeois relations. Within this sphere, within its framework, not a single educated liberal will refuse to recognize the class struggle in principle. Opportunism does not extend recognition of the class struggle to the cardinal point, to the period of transition from capitalism to communism, of the overthrow and the complete abolition of the bourgeoisie. In reality, this period inevitably is a period of an unprecedentedly violent class struggle in unprecedentedly acute forms, and consequently, during this period, the state must inevitably be a state that is democratic in a new way, for the proletariat and the propertyless in general, and dictatorial in a new way against the bourgeoisie. So I want to I want to interject here because that's mm-hmm. that's an important snippet there. Um, this period inevitably is a period of an unprecedentedly violent class struggle in unprecedentedly acute forms, and consequently, during this period the state must inevitably be a state that is democratic in a new way. Mm -hmm. Meaning we can't just elect a bunch of people from the green party or PSL and think our problems are over. Right. Um, And dictatorial, uh, there's that, that scare word again, (laughs) dictatorial in a new way against the bourgeoisie. Yeah, and I, and I think that's one reason that people struggle with these with even you know entertaining these ideas is they hear that word dictatorship, and they only think of how it's used now as against the the people, rather than if we turn everything on its head and we use that power against those who would themselves seize power for only themselves alone. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I remember even back to high school hearing about how, oh, you know, communism is, is good on paper, and then, you know, they, they elect a dictator, and then he has power, and then he's supposed to give it back to the people, but then he never does. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds like that wouldn't work at all. Not knowing that they were not talking about an actual person, a singular person being a dictator, but a dictatorship of the, of, of the proletariat. And yeah, I'm, right. The, the entire class rules the dictatorship, not... right. <laughs> And the proletariat is pretty much everybody that doesn't have an offshore bank account or a membership at a country club. I'm just right. saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can be fairly well off and, and still be a, a member of, of the working class uh, as long as you don't own the means of production and you're not a landlord. Um, then, then yeah, uh, you can be part of that as well. It's just the people that... that are taking without actually doing anything, right? Um, and it's it's so ironic that that right wingers always whine about oh, the the lazy communists that want to take other people's money just for themselves. When that's exactly what they're doing right now by being a capitalist. If you're a business owner in America, you can sit back, kick your heels up, and have all your workers do everything for you, um, and you still get paid somehow. I mean, to me, that that sounds like the ultimate in in taking, not not this this fantasy that they think that everyone's just going to to sit at home if they don't have the threat of of starvation over their head. Yeah. Um, and and uh, 
just quickly, uh, Pinkle the Bear says, discussing government or cops in any of these things must be linked to the class character of the country we are discussing. Very good point. Thank you for that. Class character always counts. That's that's very important. So when I mentioned um, having police in, in a communist or a, any sort of leftist society, uh, it would be very different than than now, just like with the dictatorship working on behalf of the people, it would be police not working on behalf of capital, which is what they're primarily doing right now, but instead to protect the people. If we're to have any sort of police and, and still call them police at all, it would just be protecting people from violating other people's, you know. I think under a proletarian state in the United States, we would be seeing systems of community defense uh, more along the lines of the Black Panther Party. Um, yeah. Or, yeah, which I, I mean, there's so many groups that continue in that tradition: the John Brown sure. Gun Club, the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, to an yeah. extent, the Socialist Rifle Association. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that we would see more of a community defense um, orientation rather than a policing orientation. Yeah, and and I'll just add to that: uh, mutual aid, disaster relief, which which were huge after Katrina, organizing community self defense when these these like literal KKK groups were going around and, and hunting black people uh, because there was no no one to stop them at that point. And they, they called out to this this group and they came in and just through show of force, just by saying, hey, look, we got guns too, so so don't mess with us, that put an end to those those rides and those people were safe after that point. So another good organization. Um, I got a couple more comments here. Natalie said, uh, certain words have been demonized, that's for sure. Hearing the word dictator still has me feeling chilling, uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. And that, that's kind of the idea of that programming. And yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not a fan of any sort of dictator, but we're not talking about a dictator. We're talking about all of us dictating what happens over the bourgeoisie. Yep, as, um, as the as the common working person, just uh, having a voice like any other common working person. Right, and Wade said the ideal we were sold as children was largely socialist. Holy shit, isn't that the fucking truth? <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Very true. Anyway, back to the text. Yeah. Further. The essence of Marx's theory of the state has been mastered only by those who realize that the dictatorship of a single class is necessary not only for every class society in general, not only for the proletariat, which has overthrown the bourgeoisie, but also for the entire historical period which separates capitalism from, quote, classless society from communism. Bourgeois states are most varied in form, but their essence is the same. All these states, whatever their form, in the final analysis, are inevitably the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. The transition from capitalism to communism is certainly bound to yield a tremendous abundance and variety of political forms, but the essence will inevitably be the same, the dictatorship of the proletariat. So I think that he's saying right at the end there that, you know, his his ideas aren't the only ones that are going to be tried and you know run sure. as experiments. Well, um, but yeah. 
uh, all, all of our states, no matter their form. So he's referring to whether it's feudal or monarchistic or or mm-hmm. um, imperial, I guess, you know, big bang. Or, or, or slave state or, yeah. Right. Um, are inevitably the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Absolutely. That includes, and I would say especially, the one that we all live under. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it, is, it, is, it is not a country for, uh, of, and by the people. It's for, of, and by the, the capitalists, really, the, the wealthiest interest among us and the most powerful among us. If it was actually by, of, and for the people, as our founding documents would imply, then mm-hmm. uh, we would not be such a hyper-capitalist, borderline fascist state. Right. Right. Yeah. There, there would be no way for them to, to exert this outsized influence on in all the elections and control society and laws to, to favor themselves and slam the door in the face of anyone that comes after them. That comes after them. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yep. Uh, so we have a, another comment from Bread Crochets. Uh, but what if the proletariat never gives up that power? Yeah, he's, he's joking. But uh, so I mean, yeah. ideally, like if there has to be class antagonisms, I would rather the proletariat <laughs> be on top than the bourgeoisie. That's all I have to say about that. I would too. I would too. I would too. And uh, yeah. That uh, just reminds me of all the, the right-wingers trying to skewer wanting democracy by saying it's tyranny by majority. <laughs> As though what we have, which is tyranny by a very select minority, is so much better. Like, where does where does this logic even come from, if you even want to call it that? I, I, I'm yeah, always, it's pretty wild, isn't it? Yeah, I'm always just amazed at, at what they come up with next. All right. Well, I, I think that's probably a good place to, to stop for the night. I'm, I'm coming up to coming up to about nine o'clock my time. So, um, did you have any final thoughts for for the chapter? This is some good stuff, in my opinion. I, I've learned a lot. I mean, I've been I've been trying to touch on it as we headed. I don't think I missed anything really that I wanted to say. But uh, the point is, is that for this for these ideas to not turn you off, pretty much you have to look at it with an open mind. And you have sure. to look at it in the language that he's using. You mm-hmm. can't just say, oh, well, he calls it a dictatorship. Okay, but he points out that we're already under one and we don't even know it. Right. Yeah, it's just a, a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Yep. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. I, I think that's my, my final thought. Let's check the chat real quick. Sure. Uh. Natalie said ruled by the corporations. That's where um, we're at. That's where we're at right now, yeah. Wade said bourgeoisie wouldn't exist in the in the society how I imagine it going. And that's the idea. You get rid of these class antagonisms and then the state weathers away. If there's any class antagonisms, then there's obviously a reason the state is still there. Looking at China. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a good example. Um, um, and then Wade also said, I wish I had been here from the beginning. Uh, you can actually go back, uh, at least on the For We Are Many and the Left Signal Boost Facebook pages. You can rewatch it there. You can rewatch it on our YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. And I will have it up on 
uh, for WeAreMany.org soon. And we are also on all major podcast platforms, and it will be on there tonight as well. Yep, and, and on my end, of course, you can go back and watch my VOD uh, once it's it's posted, which will be just after this stream ends. And then I always do an edited version that I, that I put out on my YouTube channel. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and... Let's see if my link tree is... No, my link tree is not up right now. But anyway, uh, if you go to linktr.ee dot ee slash bread underscore theory, you can find links to all the places I'm at on uh, social media. Uh, you can find links to my YouTube channel. There apparently is another bread theory on YouTube, and that's the first result that, that comes up when you search for it, unfortunately. So you just have to look for my little icon there. If you see in the, in the middle of, of my screen that uh, that green triangle in uh, with the... Uh, yellow sun around it. Um, yeah. Oh, oh, you don't see my screen at all. Yeah, that's right. I guess I'm not sharing my screen with you. But uh, but if you're viewing this stream from from my side, anyway. Um, yeah. Look for look for my icon that that also goes with my Twitch. I try to put that across social media. Well, I can I can screen share this in a second here to show you. I'm <clears throat> pulling it up on YouTube actually. To okay. Cool. Yeah, so I archive all my stuff. I am behind. Um, I, I got some editing work ahead of me, but uh, I'm just a one-man operation, so it, it takes time. Um, so yeah, I archive all my stuff there on, on YouTube. There's the channel right there. Um, oh, it actually did go live. That's cool. So I guess I am live on YouTube as well. I, I, I tried using Restream myself for the first time now, so I should be live on YouTube as well. Sorry if I, I haven't been checking that, so I don't know if anyone's commented. Um, but if you if you are watching that live stream, head on over to the Twitch one if you need to, to uh, comment on anything or if I missed any of your comments. And then I also I, I put out the audio later on as a um, as a podcast. So I'm on Anchor, and uh, you can look for Bread underscore underscore Theory on pretty much any podcasting platform. Soon, we also. Yeah, it's a good service because it pushes out all to all the different major platforms automatically. I think the only ones I'm not on right now are Luminary, Stitcher, and I think there's one more that's that's semi-large that I'm not on. But I'm on like Apple, you know, Apple Podcasts or whatever, um, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, all all the major ones. Uh, so you can just search for Bread underscore Theory. It usually comes up right away there. And listen to the audio archives if you don't have, you know, like if you're at the gym or at work and you're bored or whatever and, and you can't pull up a video, you can always pull up a podcast. Um, so, yeah, I think that'll about do it for tonight. Did you have anything else you wanted to plug or say before we sign off here? Um, I don't really think so other than, I mean, the usual. Uh, tomorrow night we will be um, – doing what's the name of the book soul on ice there we go it's not really a theory thing um but we're we read previously which you can also find on for we are many.org we previously did um bobby seals sees the time which is the story of the black panther party and bobby in that book talked about eldridge cleaver's book which was written before the black panther party uh was formed um so we're kind of just reading that for context, like, you know, what kind of people cool. were these? What kind of context did they come from? Uh, understanding a person's material conditions is crucial, I think, in understanding their theory. Um, that being said, that is tomorrow night, same time, uh, 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. 
Arizona is the only state that doesn't do daylight savings time. Oh, you rebels, you. <laughs> oh, I know, right? <laughs> um, and then Monday, obviously, we will be doing... Oh, Friday. I almost forgot about Friday's episode. Uh, Ford's Battle of the Overpass. Um, it's a pretty oh, short yeah. piece. It's only about a half hour long, but it's talking about the 1937 events. There was UAW organizers handing out leaflets on public property on a pedestrian overpass, and Ford sent in security guards to attack them. So that's that's what that piece is about. Yeah. Um, so, I'm, so. I'm from Michigan, so obviously when I'm looking into labor history, I have a certain um, leaning, I guess, towards the automotive industry. Um, we also have a piece on the Flint sit-down strike, for example, which is probably the closest that a group of people have come to seizing the means of production here in the United States. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Some vital history, uh, especially for those who are under the illusion that capitalists wouldn't kill you if they, if they could, if you stepped out of line. <laughs> right. Right. Luckily at that event, nobody died, but mm -hmm. um, that's, that's just that event. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you very much for joining me. This is, this is a lot of fun and I, I hope to do this again a lot in the future with you. And, and then hopefully Trish will be able to join us for future reads as well. Right. Yeah. All, All right. right. Well, yeah. have a great night and have a solidarity. Yep. Solidarity. Have a good one. Natalie said, thank you both. It was a great you, reading Natalie. and discussion session. Discussion session. Much to ponder. Exactly. And that's, that's also part of why, you know, we're not just going on for eight hours and doing the whole damn book. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Little bite-sized pieces. It makes it go down. Right. Yeah, for sure. Until next time, friends. All right. Till next time. Thank you. And...